chicken Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast. A Southern storm of bold, liberating rock shot through with blues, soul, and gospel. And now, your hosts for the show, Brian Jones and Jason Johannes. Welcome back to this episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast. We're always grateful for your downloads, for your participation on the Facebook page. And I'm always uh, appreciative of my co-host here, Jason. What's going on, man? Hey, Brian. Thank you. I'm always appreciative of you as well, too, because <laughs> without you, I wouldn't be talking to these great guests, especially our very special guests that we have uh, this week. We are over the moon. I say over the moon a lot. Now we're really we're over the whole solar. solar <laughs> now we're not lying. No, that's not good. We loved everybody we've spoken with. Like Everybody's been great, but this is somebody that's from a band that's very special to us. Right. So before we get into our theme for the episode, it seems like all of a sudden lately, like these, uh, we got like new bands just popping up all over the place. Not necessarily new, but for whatever reason, bands that we didn't know about, you know. So um, we've recently heard about Lizzie and the Makers. With uh, our friend Rob Cloris playing keys with them. Yeah, him. yeah. Uh, they're out of New York City, a band out of Atlanta called 6875. Another female-fronted band, and we're not, they're kind of not active right now, but we're probably going to find more out about that. Um, When I was looking for some music for the intro, show intro on this, uh, for this episode, I was trying to find uh, the song Crow Black Chicken by Ry Cooter, and I did find that, but also came up uh, this band called uh, Crow Black Chicken from Ireland. Once again, we're not absolutely positive if they're still active, but we're hoping so. Uh, they are great. And then uh, in just the last, whatever, 24 hours, 36 hours, we've come across uh, this band out of uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas, called Greasy Tree that's just fantastic. They are. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad you shared those guys with me, too. I was listening to them this morning, and... Um... Apparently, Greasy has got some kind of lingo for this style of music, too, because our buddy, J.D. Simo, he likes to use Greasy, and he has a Greasy time every week with his guitar playing. So right. what do you think a Greasy tree is? I don't know. It's not Burning Tree. <laughs> we don't want to be confused with Mark Ford's uh, old band. Nope. Uh, just, yeah, I don't Who knows? It sounds well, if we cool. speak to Greasy Tree, we can ask them. And th- th- here's the thing. It's like I'll go on, I'll just Google, you know, uh, whatever city music scene and this was little rock arkansas little rock arkansas music scene and come up you know then i was find this website and there's like 24 pages of bands so i'm going through all these and find look at the ones that have cool names and through all that you know i end up you know going like well there's one that's really good you know and mm-hmm. it's it's worth it it's worth it to go through that much uh, scrolling to uh to find a cool band you know 
the good thing is there's a lot of good bands out there going on, even though they know they don't get a bunch of support like from from anything. But just to see people still going out and and wanting to pursue rock music and making good tunes, you ran into um, completely funny, just random cricket bows out of Dayton, Ohio, who my band has actually played with and knows too. And you're like, hey, check these guys out. They're from Dayton. I'm like, yep, I played with them before. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I forgot to mention them. Um, I mentioned on the last intro that, uh, and I was, had the pleasure of watching this, but there's a this uh, called Together, two capital G T H R, Together dot com, and they do uh, live streaming with whatever artist. It's kind of a little bit of playing and Q and A session. And if you saw it this last Friday night at seven p.m. Central, you got to see the very awesome and wonderful and crazy and far out there cat Luther Dickinson, and he did mention J D. Simo is pretty cool. He was cracking some jokes about that him and Oddly Freed and Jackie Green ought to get get together and call themselves the Confidentiality Clause. <laughs> and he, he, why do you think that? Why would they be called the Confidentiality Clause, Brian? Well, I guess word on the street is like anybody that's been in the Black Crows, you know, besides you know Chris and Rich and Steve, uh, dis- you know, sign a uh, no disclosure, non disclosure agreement. So, but Luther brought that up himself. He says, hey, man, you want to ask me anything? And then he kind of ran out of time. He said, uh, next time we'll talk about the Black Crows. He was, I mean, I don't even know what it would like to be to go and hang out with him and J.D. Simo. It's oh, it would like, be, you'd just sit and just listen. Yeah, you know. <laughs> be like <laughs> Cosmic Journey. Yeah, and if they offer you some gummy bears, don't eat them. <laughs> or do. Or do if you're, you know, you're still doing that. Depends. Yeah. Um, so we're, our theme today is, you know, repetitive kind of, but it's something we can't talk about enough. And that's, you know, what, how we got here to this podcast, you know, by way of being influenced by David and Ian from the State of America podcast and how they got to that podcast. And, you know, the band that just that created all of this for us and opened doors, Black Crows. And, uh, I guess we want to talk a little bit about how we got into them. And uh, I can go first. You know, I do it. When the Southern Harmony Musical Companion came out, that record changed my life. You know, um, I, I just for some reason, I never got Shake Your Money Maker. I, I was still, you know, up to the waist in metal. Um, you know, the things that had preceded that, you know, really was, you know, not even so much Guns N' Roses, but, you know, Tesla when they came out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a couple other things there in the, you know, later 80s with Cinderella's Long Cold Winter record. Yeah. You know, a little bit of the Great White stuff. You know, you saw kind of saw the shift from, you know, a lot of bright, fancy, tattered clothes and big hairspray. All of a sudden, people started looking a little bit more, you know, normal or sleazy or just not all dolled up. And all of a sudden it got to be, you started hearing this thing about, well, these bands are bluesy, they're blues-based, and I didn't know anything about blues then. But, uh, you know, when the Southern Harmony Musical Companion came out, it just, you know, I don't even know how to put it into words. It just changed everything. It changed the whole game. And I just became obsessed, just seriously, seriously obsessed with the Black Crows. And, you know, I saw them for the first time on... uh, 
Friday, March 3rd, 1995 at the Roy Wilkins Auditorium in St. Paul, Minnesota. Saw him another 18 times over the years after that. And I just, I, uh, I, you know, what can you say? I don't know what to say, but to, you know, turn this over to you and you tell me uh, how you got into them. So you saw him the first time in 95 and you've seen him 18 times? Since then, yeah. Wow, that's pretty good. 18 altogether. Yeah, 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 yeah. So my, you know, my journey is very similar to yours, although I picked them right up on with the um, Southern uh, Shake Your Money Maker album. When that came out, I heard twice as hard, hard to handle. I was in. Uh, and much like you, I was listening to a lot of hard rock and metal, um, a lot of blues-based stuff like Aerosmith, Tesla, Great White, Cinderella. I mean, those things all kind of spoke to me. Guns and Roses, even, you know, even they're kind of like punk metal with a touch of blues to it. Um, so when the Black Crows came on the scene, I just – just immediately it just immediately resonated with me so love that album um southern harmony musical companion of course the masterpiece love that uh we get to 95 with amorica um i like that album it's a little bit different than the other ones not quite a rock as rocky you know you know and i dug that and then i never bought three snakes and one charm until i ended up getting the show enough box set in like 19 maybe 99 or something like that around there 98 99 and that's the first time I ever had Three Snakes and One Charm. That album was just too far out there for me. Um, the By Your Side record is actually what me got, got me back into the Crows. And that's when I went and bought that box set. And then I never saw them until playing until 1998. That was the first, first year I saw them. And I've seen them probably, I don't know how many times, Brian, but probably close to as many times as you've seen, seen them. Plus, I've seen uh, uh, Chris Robinson Brotherhood three or four times. I've seen the Magpie Salute like three or four times. I've seen Rich Robinson Solo twice. Um, so, like, I've just, man, just that's kind of where I've been with everybody. And, you know, over the years when band members change and whatnot, you know, I still, I really like them. And they're, but there's something specifically magical about, you know, from the time Ed joined in the beginning of 91, all the way through 97 when when uh, Mark and Johnny left. And then from 2005 when Gorman came back until Mark and Ed left. And, uh, you know, then when Luther came into the band until they were, until he was done with his tenor, those are the three kind of peaks for me. Great. Um, you know, it's just, you know, I can't say enough. Um, so. In, in my younger days too, like there was, High school, college, there's a couple bands that I listened to repeatedly, for sure. It was Led Zeppelin, always. Aerosmith, always. I listened to a ton of Junkyard, which we talked about in the Junkyard interview. Um, Candlebox was definitely on there. And then the Black Crows, man. The Black Crows, Zeppelin, and Aerosmith dominated so many years of like of my life. And still do. Ze- Zeppelin and Crows are still my two favorite bands. Right on. So we were always like hoping to, you know, well, we've talked to Rob Clores, you know, and we're, he's we've, played with uh, the crows, you know, tried to throw some lines and feelers out, you know, for some, other we wanted members. one of the big three, one of the three founding members who pretty much predominantly played with them through every, every version of that band. You are correct. Do you think, do you think we got anybody, Brian? Uh, well, I think we do. And uh, I think, uh, you should tell our listeners 
who our guest is this week. Well, it's finally happened. We landed one of our personally white whales, I think, on this podcast. One of the reasons you and I like this type of music and we're inspired to be podcasting about it. But, um, we, you know, we, we got a little guest by the name of Steam, Steve Gorman, founding member of the Black Rose, drummer, current drummer with the also excellent band Trigger Hippie. How the hell did we end up getting him? Uh, you know, just all the Cosmos lined up. You know, I had reached out to him back in October, and he was going to come on. And uh, since then, you know, I think, you know, he, of course, lost his brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's busy with some other things. And But uh, I think we just kind of chased him down on Twitter. And, yeah, yeah. And I kind of, you softened him up, and then I finished, <laughs> I, you know, finished it off. I Just a couple weeks ago, it was funny. I just randomly on Twitter, I addressed, addressed a message to him and said, hey, you know, we've had a bunch of people on our podcast that have said you're a nice guy. I'm not sure I can believe them. You know, I need proof or something. And I put, you know, I copied Greg Martin and the Headhunters and Junkyard and JD Simon, a couple other people. And then a couple minutes later, I get Steve Gorman's following you. I was like, holy crap. Then I get a DM. It's like, email me. And I did. And he started working with us on dates. So, um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I, I about lost my mind and freaked out. I showed my wife immediately that DM that I got. I'm like, oh, my God, look at this. <laughs> it's all happening. Yeah, and then he told me, and I'm like, woohoo! <laughs> and then you told your wife right away. Yeah, right, you know. right, yeah. And they're like, whatever, we don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one thing about it that this kind of episode has done for me is that, you know, it's, you know, Steve has spoken about the book, you know, you know, hard to handle life and death of the black crows. And he says that, uh, so many people from back in that time, other, you know, ex band members, crew members, uh, promoters, you know, uh, journalists, rock journalists. And they all said the same thing that it gave them some closure. Um, and I, you know, I get, for me, I guess like there was never any kind of sort of like, Oh my God, I can't believe like this is happening. And they're, you know, and they're not going to go on. I'd kind of gotten the sense that that was, you know, happening. But after talking to him, it's kind of, it was cool because we went, you know, as the listeners will hear, you know, we started with the Crow stuff and then then got into Trigger Hippie. And then I, and for me, that kind of gave me some, you know, I guess closure as well, although I didn't think I needed that, but it just kind of did. And, and, you know, if we should ever have him on again, it'd just be all about trigger hippie, you know, cause that's what's going on now. And my trigger hippie t-shirt just came in the mail today. You're and I'm rocking it. That's and a nice the, looking shirt, by yeah, the way. I dig that. A little late out of the gate for getting their CD full circle and then some, but I've got it and I'm very happy about that. And, you know, when we spoke about another band that those guys have been friends with for a long time. And, and as far as I'm concerned, kind of, took that baton from them and have been running with it ever since Blackberry smoke. So they kind yeah. of, they really do satiate my, you know, you know, whatever leftover desires are there to, you know, when you go and see the crows and, you know, they're like the train robbers and that's Blackberry smoke now. But, uh, but yeah, uh, this is really all about Steve Gorman, of course. And we are very grateful and proud to have him on so we just want to tell the listeners you know sit down relax get yourself whatever kind of cold beverage you prefer coffee whatever 
and uh, listen to our interview with the one and only former Black Crows drummer, current Trigger Hippie drummer, and co-host of the radio show Steve Gorman Rocks every night, the one and only Mr. Steve Gorman. guest segment of this week's episode of the all things blues and southern rock podcast we have an amazing guest with us and we're over the moon and as always jason gets to be the lucky guy to introduce this guest and you guys are going to be stoked brian again i see it it's always my pleasure every week for you to allow me to introduce the guest and i i've lied every time so this week i actually mean it um we have a fantastic special guest somebody who's really influenced this music scene that we talk about blues and southern rock um, you may know him as a sports radio host. You may know him as a rock radio host. You may know him as the founding member of the band, awesome band, Trigger Hippie. Or you may know him maybe offhand as a founding member and drummer of the Black Crows. It's Mr. Steve Gorman. How you doing, Steve? I'm well, gentlemen. How's everybody? We are good. good. We are Stoked good. to have you on. You've made my, uh, uh, maybe my life. I think between <laughs> you and everything you provided from radio, albums, books, podcast guests, um, you or Mystery Science Theater 3000 has given me the most entertainment of my life. So thank you. I've never been mentioned in the same sentence as uh, MST3K, but nothing makes me happier. Trust me. <laughs> I've been waiting 30, 25 <laughs> years for somebody to draw that connection. <laughs> well, you've come to the right podcast. Awesome. <laughs> Well, Steve, we're really hoping to like blaze through crow stuff and make this more, you know, a trigger hippie episode. So we got some crow stuff, some trigger hippie stuff, uh, some sports, and just some fun stuff in general. So, but uh, basically, to start out like, how's your shoulder doing, man? How, how's it feeling? How are you doing with all that? It's fine. It was my uh, I, the issue I had was closer to my elbow. It was my bicep tendon that tore, uh, and and it can cut, tore. It can it sometimes tears at the shoulder. Mine was lower. At the elbow. So I had surgery last August. I had about three months uh, without my right arm, but uh, it's, I don't even think about it anymore. It's all good. Right on, right on. I took, the rehab, the, way- I took the rehab very seriously. When the guy said, do these exercises every day, I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sensing the sarcasm in that. No, not at oh, all. Okay. I, I was like, if you tell me this is going to fix my arm, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I, uh, I was, I w- he was worried because he said people get bored and they give up. And I was like, no, I really need this arm. This is kind of an important thing to me. Well, you know, you can always go into a Def Leppard tribute band and use one arm. <laughs> I, I really couldn't, honestly. <laughs> I, 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 I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of, you know, you, there's a lot of drummers I wouldn't even attempt to emulate. And, and that guy, Rick Allen, is on the list. He's awesome. Uh, I mean, super coordinated with your feet, right? It's unbelievable. I talked to him about a month ago for my radio show and he said that, he can do things now that he couldn't do before because like everything that would have been coming out of his left arm, it just went to his right arm and both feet. And it, you know, it's like he said, he compared it to when you lose one sense and your other senses go into hyperdrive to, to, uh, you know, cover for it or something, but it was a fascinating conversation. I've always said, 
it's it's so crazy that people sort of take for granted just how insane it is what that guy went through and what he did and and i i think the reason it's it's that i wouldn't i wouldn't be interested just because the way i play it's so much about i have to i have to hit things and i got to feel it and it's got to be it's such a visceral visceral thing for me as i do it and i can't imagine that i would enjoy it with all the triggers and the different things he has to do to make it work but then again i'm not in that situation if that did happen to me and someone put me on that kid, I might say, Oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. But I, I just, I am eternally in, in awe of what that guy did. And also what his band did to wait around for him to figure it out. Yeah. I don't, I, I you can't find another band on earth that would wait three years for their drummer to figure out how to play with one arm. So would the black Rose done that for you? No, I've said many times, and I mean this, they would have been booking auditions, driving to the hospital to visit me. <laughs> and, and and that's not, I'm not cutting on them. I mean, no, I, I, get, I get it. No, I mean, that's like what you would have to do. It's like, wait, he did what? <laughs> Holy shit, we need a drummer. Let's go see if he's okay. I mean, that's what 99% of all the bands in the world would do. Yeah. And by the way, that question comes to you from uh, Steve Gleason and not Seth Miller from the Americans, And they say hi, by the way. Beautiful. Good fellas up there in the Northeast. They seem to be all right. They they were very care- they were very you know cautious of your shoulder and wanted to make sure your arm, make sure you were doing okay. They went you back on. The oh, road. God bless them all. <laughs> so I'm gonna just start kind of right from the beginning and get through that. Like um, when you got to Little Five Points in Atlanta, like I've heard that that's you know supposedly like they call it the Hate Ashbury of Atlanta. Was it really like that? Was it steep with artists and? Um, and yeah, uh, in, in the, by the late '80s, it was becoming that. I think it. I think from what the people there said, like the '70s, it kind of died. It was really pretty. It, it kind of fell away. There, a lot of the a lot of the shops there were vacant for years. I know when uh, Wax, Danny Beard, the owner of Wax and Facts, the record store that's still there, it's been there since the mid '70s, where I worked. I think he told me once, you know, it, it had really fallen off for a while, and then by the Mid to late 80s, it was filling back in. It was very busy by that point. But um, I don't know if it had always been that kind of vibe. I know that certainly by the mid-90s, it was no turning back. It was fully, actually earlier than that. By, by 90 or 91, I think every business was full with a successful place and people really knew it. Um, I mean, it seemed that way to me in 87. It, uh, you know, I, I moved there from Bowling Green, Kentucky. So, yeah, as far as I knew... I was in Haight-Ashbury. And then, of course, the first time I went to San Francisco, I was like, oh, no, okay, no, it's nothing like this at all. <laughs> it's much smaller and, you know, didn't have quite the, 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 the depth of the roots for that scene. But, yeah, it's, it's, it was uh, – but, but for Atlanta, for that time, yeah, it was the place to be. It was just – you know, I, I thought it was really cool. You know, I worked first at the Fellinis in Little Five Points, and, you know, you just – you would have a guy who had a day job wearing a tie sitting next to some skinheads sitting next to some deadheads sitting next to skate punk sitting next to Vespa mod guys. You know, it was, it was a great mixed bag uh, at that time. I loved it. So getting into when you start out with Mary, my hope, and then you, you know, you got into Mr. Crow's garden. Um, was that more like an obvious better fit for you or was more having to do with Chris's persistence? to get you into Mr. Crow's it, it was, it was all, it was, it was a lot of various things. I mean, there was, um, you know, I, I looked at, at the look, looking back, it's, I, I can make sense of my process and decision-making a little cl- more clearly now with, you know, 34 years of hindsight at the time, it was, 
it felt like a better fit musically. It felt like a better fit personally in that um, Mary, my hope was already, there was already not a power struggle, but I could tell that James and Clint, the two guitarists, James played guitar and also sang. They, they were just chalk and cheese. Their personalities were really at odds. I felt. Um, And then I also just, but, but that said, the band was way more ambitious musically. I mean, they were writing much more, uh, much heavier music, much darker music, and much more complicated music than Mr. Crow's Garden. And I, I think I was doing fine. I don't, they weren't concerned about my drumming at all. I definitely had the sense of, shit, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to keep up with this, you know, because I had just started playing. And Mr. Crow's Garden at the time, uh, the, the the reference points they were digging into and the way their band sounded, I could, I just knew, like the first time I ever played a song with them, it was just they were actually auditioning drummers and they wanted me to show this other drummer an intro fill. Like he couldn't get the time of it down. And I had just heard them playing the song for weeks living in the same house. So I knew it. And just in sitting down, it was a song called take this regret, just playing that song with them once as just a guy, Oh, I'm in the room. I can show you. I right away. I just felt this comfort level that, that I was already finding harder and harder to get with Mary, my hope. And I think it was like, Oh man, this is more the kind of band that my style might fit. Or, you know, and, the, and Chris was really persistent about it. And maybe all of this was just rationalizations for something I wasn't even aware of at the time. You know, I don't know. It's a weird thing because I, I was I do know that I was stuck between thinking this is the biggest decision I'll ever make. And then internally laughing at myself for thinking it was such a big decision. I mean, we're talking about two bands. You know, I joined a band that had, I left a band that had played exactly three gigs and I joined a band who had a guitar player who was still a senior in high school. It wasn't, it wasn't like jumping from, you know, the stones to the Beatles in 1967 or anything. Yeah. But you know, it just, it just felt really, it it felt like, uh, it felt like something was going to happen actually with both bands and, you know, Mary, my hope got a record deal before Mr. Crow's garden. So I did feel like, I didn't feel like I was throwing an opportunity away. And I also didn't feel like I was jumping on the A train by any stretch. I mean, I honestly thought Mary, my hope, and I was. This was proven in very short order. Mary, my hope was better than Mr. Crow's Garden for a while. There, they they fell together and did something that was, in my mind, it was like, holy shit, those guys are getting it, you know. And I didn't feel like we were there for you know a year or so. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question about Mary, my hope, and your and your in your great, your fantastic book, hard to handle, love it. I've read it twice already. You mentioned that you went over to Mr. Crow's Garden because you thought those guys were going to get signed. Before Mary, my hope, but then Mary, my hope ends up getting signed. Like what actually happened? Well, I, to those guys? That, I, I didn't. That that I, that's not why. That wasn't. That's not true. I I they were the first thing I played with them was a demo for A and M Records, but I didn't have any sense that that meant anything other than oh my god, A and M's giving them some money to do demos. I mean, it sounded good to tell people, hey, we're dealing with A and M, but I never. I met I met the guy from A and M Records once. You know what I mean? It wasn't like they were actively courting the band there was nothing that and 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 i already knew that the brothers didn't even like the guy very much like they'd okay. met him and they were like eh. it just didn't have that vibe at all it wasn't like i thought oh man this is the fast track it it uh, because honestly if that's what i've been thinking i would have probably said mary my hopes got a better shot right now okay and okay. and whether they did or not i mean i'm just talking about my mindset what i sure. perceive both those bands to be I, I was actually more impressed by the fall of 87 with Mary, my hope than I was Mr. Crow's garden. And I was in Mr. Crow's garden. So uh, early on in those days, I, th- I saw somewhere, I think 
It may have been on Preston Holcomb's uh, Facebook, um, who plays percussion with Blackberry Smoke now. But I saw like a tour or like a schedule for a bar somewhere, and it had like you guys on the schedule, Mary My Hope, Nihilist, I think, Hootie and the Blowfish, <laughs> and like maybe Widespread Panic. So wow. Did you see all those guys earlier on? Any sort of camaraderie with any of them or... You yeah, that. well, I mean, obviously, the the I mean, Mary, my hope guys, and Mr. Rose Garden, we were always, I mean, we were we were very much frenemies. You know, we were competitive, but we were always friends. Like, if we ran into them out at a bar, we were all like, "What's up? What's up?" You know. And then, of course, if we went to see them, we'd sit there and judge them, and they do the same to us, and the way local bands do. But as far as other bands, Nihilist, I never saw them. I mean, that was just such a different scene. That was like speed metal. You know, that's not something I would have gone to see. Um, Hooting the Blowfish, I always heard that name. I mean, you can remember that name when you see it. But we never crossed their path till, I mean, they had the the big record on Atlantic. I think the first time we met Darius was, in fact, I know the first time I ever met him was the same night we met Jimmy Page for the first time in London. He was at that gig at the Royal Albert Hall in 95. Um, but, but there were a ton of bands in the Southeast that we were, you know, crossing paths with, not just from Atlanta. Uh, there was a great band from Jacksonville called the Beggar Weeds, bunch of bands from Nashville, Jeff Cease's band Rumble Circus, uh, the Royal Court of China. There, there was a ton of bands that we were aware of and would go see and that we were all really into, you know, that we would you'd cross paths with. And, you know, it's just as simple as, oh, you know, what's this gig like? We're playing there next week and everybody would tell you this or that about the town you hadn't been to. You know, Dash Rip Rock from New Orleans always looked out for us. They let us open for them always uh, made sure things were cool for us. There was a, there was a, there was a lot of bands back then we used to, you know, hang out with and like you do when you're a part of a scene. And the scene for us was really the whole South. It wasn't just Atlanta. It was the Southeast. Okay. Getting into, we're going to get right into Crows tours. Like how, how long could any Crows tour remain like harmonious before it turned into chaos? Any tours? Oh, not, it, 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 that's, it was, it didn't have anything to do. I mean, with, I mean, there, there, are, there are periods of time. You could look at a month or a, or a season that was more easier going than others, but there was no way. I mean, we had, you know, you know there's a million days in the Black Crows where I look back and go, man, that was a great day. And there was still a huge fight that day. You know what I mean? It just, it was such a, it's, it's something that everybody just learned how to deal with, which is just, there, this is a, the winds can shift, you know, like, like that on a dime. And and uh, having a big laugh with one or two or three of my bandmates can immediately turn into a big argument if someone else walks into the room or if somebody misinterprets something you say. There was there was a lot of everybody was on edge and everybody was trying to have a good time, and so you would force the fun in order to balance out the the dark side. It just looking back, it just everybody worked really hard just to get through every day. But you know, we were young and we were a great band and we were dumb enough to think if that's what it takes, it's worth it, you know? And, and, uh, I, I, you know, I look back now, a lot of the stuff I say when I look back, well, it's easy to say in my mid fifties. So that's why I'll say it, but, but it's, it was very difficult to make sense of in real time, very clearly for everybody. I mean, you know, everyone likes to look back and and say myself include, Oh, well this makes sense now, but I, I never, I don't kid myself and say I could make perfect sense of it at the time. It was, it was difficult. You kind of answered my next question. I was like, how how do you get through that when it's just, you know, those guys are, you know, being crazy and, and argumentative and all that? Like, what? Well, it's, if you're it's, trapped on that bus, like, what do you do? 
Well, you just go to your bunk and invest in headphones. I mean, you know, you just the the, the thing. You know, I, I one thing I I did recognize very early on was, you know, we were all young enough to where we were able to, like we we never toured as a band until Shake Your Moneymaker was released. We would go out and play weekends. You know, one time in the history of Mr. Crow's Garden slash the Black Crows. We played four nights in a row exactly once before Shake Your Moneymaker was released. We never had more than four in a row. And when we did that, it was we went out and played four shows and went back home and probably didn't play again for two weeks. We never toured. We went out and did weekends. We would do two or three nights in a row. And one time we got as many as four. That was it. So we didn't have experience you know, that, that you can only get from having six, eight, 10, 12 weeks on tour. Now the band, two things that really happened. One, the band got really good, really fast. Like we, we improved greatly during 1990 because we just played every night, but then we also learned, um, we had a real crash course in how to get really sick of each other really fast. And then, well, but there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's not like in the old days when everybody could immediately go, let's get a new bass player. You know, or let's let's get a new drummer. And then I would just simply say, no, <laughs> what are you going to do? Or whatever the problem was. You know, all of a sudden we're like, we got a record out and, and we are booked for the next six months. So there's no easy fix. You know, you just got to get used to it. And we were young enough and still it was exhilarating enough for a long time to just, you just didn't want to harp on on anything negative or anything dark or anything really stupid because you knew it would pass. And tomorrow's always a chance to get up and do it again. It was kind of like, it's kind of like the way baseball players say, yeah, you can go 0 for 5 one night, but the good thing is you got a game tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to wait a week. You got you get up and do it again tomorrow. And so I think we all fell into some habits that if we had been older, if we had all been in our late 20s and all had real lives up to that point, that never would have worked. But if you put five kids in their early 20s on a bus and give them just enough success to keep that carrot moving away with a lot of potential. And then, and then we're actually becoming a really great band. You know, it's really easy to overlook an awful lot of things that should have been addressed and dealt with and, 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 and made sense of. And by the time anybody was willing to do that, it was just way past the point of it being something we saw as possible. So you just accept, Oh, well, this is just our, this is our world. We created it. Here we are. So and then to follow up on that more, like when the substances became more and cocaine's coming in the picture and doing, and that's becoming more of a thing, and then, you know, we know Rich never did any drugs. He didn't abuse alcohol, whatever. And I, I always thought, like, next, like, you know, in time, like, you cut back on drinking and whatnot. Was there any, was there ever a time where you and Rich had any sort of non-substance abusing bond at all when everybody else is going nuts? Or Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. We spent a lot of time together not being wasted. Um, and then, obviously, we had a, we had a, we had a very serious connection just musically without that, that we didn't acknowledge or talk about, but looking back, it's very clear to see, you know, to me, that was the, you know, everything was built around that. Um, and it was just cause we learned how to play together. You know, it's like, we, we, we figured out how to play in a way that you can't teach. Like we taught ourselves how to do something at the same time in the same room as each other. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I it's funny when I went back to the band in 2005, I remember so clearly just that's when I really, really resonated with me. Like, man, I know what that guy's going to do before he does it half the time. And when I don't, I know it as soon as he knows it. You know, I just, it was real obvious after not playing with him for a few years. And and he would say the same thing, or he would have been, I'm sure, about about my playing. We just understood each other's playing in a way, in a way that, 
I'd never thought to analyze. It just made perfect sense to me. You know, it's like if someone, you know, it's anything you learn how to do, you just think that's the way you do it. And then you go do it with other people and you realize, wow, that's pretty special. That's weird. Like being part of a great um, sports team, right? Like the, the teamwork. It's, it's, an, it. it's, an, it's entirely that. I always, I always thought, I, I always think a great band is like a basketball team, you know, sure. it's w- without question. Um, but in, t- but in terms of, you know, offstage. Yeah. I mean, I mean, everybody had, everybody spent a lot of time with each other in various things, but Rich and I, um, just as the two guys that were never doing blow, you know, I, I mean, I, I did a handful of times. It was never really something I took to, but yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's as simple as, Oh, there's a movie in the front lounge and there's a raging party in the back lounge. All the two of us are up front, okay. you know, watching, watching raising Arizona for the 75th time. <laughs> Great movie though. <laughs> that is. Can you look back on a time now and see where, a point where things really started deteriorating with, you know, specifically your friendship with Chris, was it a sudden thing or was it a slow death? And like with Rich as well, can you, you know, pinpoint a time where like, Hey, like this is, we're becoming more business associates than friends and a friendship is deteriorating. It felt, it felt, yeah. I I mean, I don't know. There there was a bunch of those moments. I mean, at the time, when did it occur to me? I I, I didn't think of it in those terms. It was there. It was kind of obvious. I mean, I knew, I knew when Johnny and Mark left in 97, you know, I felt like uh, the fact that it wasn't even a conversation to try to figure out how to keep them. Like it was never even, it was just like, okay, fine, let's get two new guys. I mean, that, that really, I wasn't surprised, but I was shocked if that makes sense. You know, the constant thing for me was my brain rationalizing away what my gut always knew was happening. You know what I mean? That, that was the, the stupidity of my experience, you know, the, when I just didn't want to admit to myself how bad things were making me feel or how much I wasn't on board with, with things. But then again, I say that and the next day a new song would be coming together and it would just be awesome. It would just turn me on so much. And it would be like, man, or we'd go play a gig and it's like, you have to keep reminding yourself, wait, we're here to be in a band. We're not here to be an encounter group. You know, this, this band's fucking great. And so it, it's just that, that that sort of dog chasing its own tail was just a constant piece of it. But along the way too, I mean, I, I, it was, there's so much, you know, that I didn't spend a lot of time in the book explaining all the great stuff. Cause that's pretty obvious. I mean, that's something everybody experiences together. Like the fans know, you know, the band knew there's certain nights. Yeah, of course, there, there was, there's plenty of those, you know I mean? The, but as far as the, um, all, all that internal stuff, you know, it's, it's, again i i a lot of things that that strike people as really dramatic at the time they were just it was just tuesday you know it was like no maybe wednesday will be better can you pinpoint a time when everything just clicked at the right time for the band it was just sure like a perfect i mean yeah there's a bunch of those you know i mean i mean when we made southern harmony that entire experience felt like that at the time when we were recording Amorica, you know, the actual record for Amorica, those sessions just felt great. You know, there's a million gigs. I mean, there's uh, honestly hundreds of gigs where walking off stage, you just felt, uh, you felt uh, immortal. And, 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 and what's the word? Like we could not be killed. We right. are just, we are untouchable and, and everybody would float off stage together. I mean, we had things like that happen all the time. Do you remember um, the last time you felt like that? Um, no, but I'm sure there, there were nights in 2010 where, uh, it was pretty obvious the divide in, in between the brothers and, and the overall 
enthusiasm for everybody for the band was really waning. But that said, we had nights on that tour where I felt like we were as cohesive a band where we were all doing something together as well as, as we'd ever had. It was very different than the band in the nineties, but it was a great, it was a great band again. And I, I really enjoyed a lot of those shows. Um, and then in 2013, I, I don't really think we had a whole lot of those feel, you know, we didn't have a lot of those, I think, but everybody got along really well. And, and it was, I, I was surprised that tour was even happening. So, you know, but by that point I'd stopped looking for those moments. I kind of, you know, my, my priorities changed, you know, once you have to admit to yourself, okay, take away what everybody's saying, everybody's actions are showing me very clearly, this is never going to be a real band again. It's, 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 it's never going to be what it could have been. It's never going to be what it once was. I had to reassess entirely what I wanted to be, what I wanted it to be for me and what I wanted to get out of it. So I was able to do those things and make sense of it. You know, at, some, at a certain point, it is just as simple as saying, well, I got a family and this is a great job. This is a better job than any other job I could go get right now. Because at least it's, you know, still my band. <laughs> you know, it's like, or now it's my group or now it's a group, you know, but that's still in the grand scheme of things. It's not the kind of, I, I just, it was, it took me a while to admit that. It, and it was sad to admit it, but it was also like, okay, well, we had it. It's gone. That's okay. We're still really good. This is still a good thing. And and you, you never a hundred percent think it's gone forever. You, you do hope maybe somebody's gonna something will happen and we'll all be on the same page. And maybe we got one last great run in us. Who know? You know, you never know. Um, and and but the you know after twenty fourteen, I haven't given that a second thought. I mean, I, I it's that's that's not possible, and it's also not desirable. So on a tactical note, when you mentioned Amorica, you guys did when you finally got into work into what was Amorica? That was in Sound City, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice, like, with Dave Grohl's documentary, he said that room was so great for drums. Did that seem particularly the case for you? No. Um, I mean, I, I thought we got great drum sounds. I was given more credit to Jack Twig and and his mad scientist uh, willingness to spend six hours to get a kick drum sound. Um, you know, Jack really knows microphones. He really knows recording. Um, but it's not to say Sound City's not great for drums, but because I, I was working with Jack for the first time, I, I, in my mind, I just thought, man, he's guy really knows what he's doing. Um, you know, Sound City to me wasn't at all remarkable. I was comfortable there. It was a good room. I mean, I, and I knew right away, like, we're making a good record now. This is cool. But, um, and, 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 you know, but I don't remember thinking anything like, oh, my God, this is like Headley Grange. This is amazing. <laughs> you know, I was, we were just making another record, and I really liked this one a lot better than the one we had just made. So I was happy to be doing it. You guys worked with a few different producers. Is there any particular style of any of those guys that stuck out to you that you preferred? Or do you see huge differences between them? All yeah, um, the two guys who just really worked the fastest, Brendan O'Brien never produced us, but we he was an engineer. And then we did a session with him in New Orleans of some demos. Uh, he works really fast. He just likes to set up and plug in and go. And let's get, let's just, we'll, we'll just capture something if we don't overthink it. That was what I imagined his process to be. Kevin Shirley was very much like that. Uh, Kevin liked to record during the daytime. This whole thing was morning energy, man. Get here at 10, drink coffee. Let's start tracking at noon. Let's get out of here. For the kind of record that we were making with him, that made perfect sense. Is that by your um, side? Yeah. I think that I, I, that said, I mean, I, I like how everybody works because you learn something from every situation. 
I mean, I love George. He's my favorite guy to hang with in the world. And we, we made two great records with George. So I'm certainly not knocking his approach on any level. But to me, I think that the, the Black Crows were at their best when we didn't overthink anything, when we just let the music, you know, we were the kind of band that could show up. We could show up late and have to set up and not get a sound check and just count it in, go, and it could be great. And I feel like we got in our own way oftentimes when we tried to overthink things and tried to make things something they weren't originally supposed to be. I mean, the strength of the band was what the band could do in the moment. And anytime we let that be the case, I think we were, I think we made great records. I think we did had great gigs. Um, I'm all for uh, being ambitious and trying to do new things, but I think it's also important to recognize what's in your, what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and, and not just assume that, well, because we're trying it, it's worthwhile. It's like, yeah, you learn about it and then move on. You know, take, if you learn something new from going in a new direction, bring it back into the realm of what you're great at. You know, I, I, I never wanted to rewrite shake your moneymaker. I never wanted to sound like that again, but that record was us doing what we could do at the time to the best of our ability. The Southern harmony was us being the best we could be. We made a record called band in 97 that I thought was us being the best we could be at the time. There's moments where, you know, by, by design or by happenstance, we just captured these, these moments where everything just fell together. And those were always the, the best to me. I mean, and some of, you know, I think there's some great songs that are on other records that aren't as great as they could be. If we had, if we'd had it two years earlier or two years later, the version would even be better or whatever. But at that point it's nitpicking. I mean, all the records just are what they are. Uh, speaking of band, I thought I read or heard at some point that Mike Wanchik from John Mellencamp's band was going to produce is that true or no yeah yeah he came down uh chris had met him and they had been talking about doing something and we we went into a studio in atlanta and we were a couple days into recording a bunch of songs which we thought were demos and wanchek came by and listened and was like man this stuff sounds great this is awesome and we were talking about maybe let's go work with him let's do a few songs with him and see how it goes and he suggested we go up to nashville because his buddy was opening the ocean way studio here in nashville in 97 he said let's let's go to Nashville next month and just see what happens. And we did that. By that point, we had, we loved what we did in Atlanta so much. I, there was just no way we were going to beat it to go record it again. Like that was one of those, you know, we went in and thought we were doing demos and five days later we had a record and it's how we saw it. Like shit, we just did this. And I think that's a testament to the, we had a bunch of, we had some really great songs. It's a really good bunch of songs and the band would just been, uh, on the road for you know from the summer before and jamming so much and taking things so far out that our play had gotten to its greatest point ever and when we compiled all that and then put it into some really tight four-minute well-written songs it just hit some really special place i mean songs like my heart's killing me and wyoming and me and and another roadside tragedy and pain and eight i mean th those still to me are so unique it was the perfect blend of really well-written songs with a band that was just like a six-headed machine. Yeah, I got two more little uh, questions about the Crows before we wrap that up and go into Trigger Hippie. So in the book, you know, when Johnny left, you said, I think that last line, I can't remember specifically how it was worded, but you said that Johnny had won the Black Crows. <laughs> yeah. What you meant by that. I think his experience is the best of any member. You know, he left... Uh, the band was never, ever better after he left than when he was there um, by, by most objective measures. Um, he walked out sober, focused, feeling good about his, his overall life. He'd gotten his shit together. 
um, when he left, you know, it was totally his decision. He had suffered through some really difficult times and just came out with his, with his head on straight and, and walked and never looked back. I mean, didn't no second thoughts like don't gone and, and has had a, a tremendous post black crows experience. I mean, he was in the band for eight years and it's been how many years since he left 24. And so it's still, you know, he's been gone for three times as long as he was there. But, uh, but within just a very short number of years, he had already pulled himself so far into another, in other lanes. I mean, he's a guy who still is, he's a, he's a fascinating dude and he's a wonderful uh, human and very successful in a number of realms. And he's awesome. I mean, he's just really, you know, I, I, I love my life right now. It took me a lot longer to get to where I could say that than it did, than it did Johnny. And at the time he left, I was really, I, I thought it was the time to go too, but I hadn't prepared myself for that moment. I was like, Oh fuck. He spent the last two years getting, getting ready to leave. And I spent the last two years just making sure I could handle this, you know, like we had different that we both realized it was probably not long for the world, you know, and our mindset during the America tour was that this band just does not have a long shelf life. We better prepare ourselves. And he prepared correctly. And I think I prepared uh, incorrectly to put it simply, but he just, it's pretty simple. I mean, you know, to say he won the black crows, that's just my way of saying nice job, dude. Fuck way to go. Because so I, I mean, I mean, he played on he played on "Shake Your Moneymaker," "Southern Harmony," "Amorica." We did three snakes, and then he played on band, which is my you know, which I think is a tremendous. Just because it didn't come out doesn't mean it wasn't the band at its best. So you know, if you put "By Your Side" and "Lions" and anything from the two thousands next to the stuff Johnny did, I, I don't know that anybody's going to say those records that the band wasn't as strong as it was when Johnny was there. I'm not saying that's because Johnny wasn't there specifically at all, but I mean, when he looks back on what he did with the band, it was just all quality. Boom, boom, boom. You know, nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to go. What were we thinking? Nothing. You know, it was just a good, if you were going to write it out on a piece of paper, these are the, these are the runs everyone's going to have. It's like, his is pretty fucking great. So last Crow's question. And, you know, people talk so much about Mark, which is totally understandable, but, Sure. I'm wondering if you could say a few words about Oddly and Luther and what it was like having those guys in and specifically what you said in the book about Luther being rock royalty. Well, I mean, that was our perspective on just being such fans of his father. You know, it was always an interesting thing to us. It was always a, a special thing for us. Um, and we had met Luther in 2000, 2001 with the when the All-Stars first did some festivals with us. And we were all like, man, this Jim Dickinson's kids. Those guys are awesome, you know. Um you know, Audley's a great player. His contributions to the band, just from the circumstance that he joined, he was never able to really fully flourish in the band. He didn't play on on By Your Side. He joined us after we had recorded that. I think he's on one song on Lions. And then, uh, you know, that was it. Then he did. But live at the Greek, he played a huge role in. He was sort of the MD, if you will. He taught everybody the songs. In a real, to simply put, he knew the songs inside and out and made it, much easier for everybody to figure out how to play those songs. So he was a huge piece of that being so uh, productive and, and, and being so great from, from our, from our side of things. Um, Luther was absolutely a different situation. Just the reality of their tenures was very different. Luther came in with full carte blanche to bring what you bring to the table. The band's sound was going to be very different. You know, it was moving in a little different direction to begin with, but then, 
you know, it was like we wouldn't have hired Luther Dickinson so that he could replicate Mark Ford. You know, I mean, that's not what you do. Luther's his own guy. Mark, Mark is Mark and Luther's Luther. And it's out of respect for both of them that it's like, no, no, you, you bring what you do to the band now. This is where the band's going to go with you as a part of it. So um, just, you know, both obviously both between Audley and Luther, both great players. And the fact of the matter is Audley was, was handcuffed creatively. And I think he still did a great job. He, he played his ass off when he was playing with the Black Crows. But on a creative, like, especially in the studio, there was never an opportunity for him that you could, that on any level, much less uh, as much as Luther contributed on the three records he played on. All right, so this is where this turns into the Trigger Hippie episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast. Um, you've got a solid lineup now. Now, is this solid? solid and this is the lineup you're moving forward? This is solid as concrete as far as i know <laughs> I've, I've i would hope you learned, would know <laughs> certainly learned that the best laid plans and rock bands uh rarely go the way you want don't but, you uh, control that as like a founding member like key member of that as far as well no i mean you just never you know people well, i mean life, you're, life you're not fired people oh no it's it's this is i mean yeah no in all sincerity like nick and i you know nick govrick and i have had this concept cooking in our brains literally since 2004. And what, what the band is now is a lot more like what we would have said we wanted to do back then. Along the way, though, uh, we got a bunch of our friends involved and it went in a very different direction. And that was great, too. Uh, when that band, in, by the summer of 2015, the lineup we had with Joan Osborne and Jackie Green, it was pretty apparent that just wasn't that wasn't built to last. It was a fun thing to do. And everybody dug it, and we had some great shows. But if we were going to have a band that we could literally say, like, hey, this is our primary focus, uh, that wasn't the lineup for that. And right. so, you know, we pulled the plug, and let's just take a little time and get away from this. And then, again, life gets in the way. You know, like we said, let's take six months off. And then two years later, we're like, hey, do you want to do something? You know, because, you know, I got two kids. Nick has three kids. We both have other jobs. There's a lot of things that go on in life. And plus, you don't have uh, that. I, I certainly don't have that burning desire that I had when I was 22 years old to, you know, put everything behind a band. I mean, if I've learned one thing, it's forcing anything in a band is the best way to blow that band apart. And so as I've gotten older, I just got way more patient and, and easygoing with a lot of things. And so when we started uh, working on some ideas and then Ed Jurdy joined us we knew right away, like, Oh, this is really clicking. This is pretty cool. We all feel really good about this. And when we got Amber, our singer, that was just this final piece that just was perfect. She's like amazing. it all just, she really is amazing. And it just, it, it just, everything, it fell into place. And, and I got a real affirmation on, I had been telling myself for a couple of years, just be cool. The right person's going to show up. Just wait, wait, don't rush into something. If you don't know, it's not right. Cause bands, you know, 99% of a band is chemistry. I mean, if it's a real band, you just got to have something that goes beyond what you can see on the surface in a perfect world. And so if, you know, my thing with Nick was always, we, I mean, the thing we agreed on was if we're going to do, if we're going to say this is a band, let's, let's be a real band. Let's find the people where it really does connect. And I don't want to, I don't want to put a square peg in a round hole and call it a band, you know? Um, I mean, the Black Crows did that with members over the years. And I don't, I mean, I learned from it. I'm not saying you do what you got to do and the black crows did have plenty of reasons to keep moving but trigger hippie was just sitting there doing nothing and it was like i'm not going to rush into this at all and so 
again, when we, when Amber stepped in and we started working with her, it was just like, Oh, thank God, this is fantastic. And honestly, if we hadn't met Amber, I don't know what would have happened. We, <laughs> I don't know that we would have put a record out and I don't know if we would have said, we're going to go out and tour, you know, and Saul, the other guitarist, it's the same thing. He came in and played on the last song we recorded for the album. It's called The Door. Mm-hmm. He does that slide solo. That was his first take. He did it. And then he said, okay, now I got it. Let's do one. And we all said, dude, that was it. <laughs> like, we just recorded it. Your work day is done. And that was all we needed to hear. And then we were jamming on some other stuff. And at some point, I was like, do you want to go out and play some gigs? And he was like, yeah, I thought you'd never ask. And I told him, well, then you're, you know, you can't get away from us now. And so that was really, it, it was great. You know, that, that, band, that band, and we do have some shows that we're going to announce soon that have come in that we can play. Okay. okay. And, uh, and we're thrilled because it was, it's over a year now. The last time we played a gig was here in Nashville in March. Uh, I think it was March 7th or 8th. So yeah, we're all just dying to uh, get up and start playing again. We were really starting the, the, the last, you know, the spring of 2020, man, we were cooking. It was, it was feeling you know, the shows were always fun. I thought we always were uh, getting a lot done up there, but it, we just started hitting that place where it was like, you know, every night the groove came a little sooner and it lasted a little longer, you know, that sort of vibe you get when you're like, Oh man, this is okay. We're here tonight. You know, it, like it takes a while, any great band, you got to get out and do a couple dozen shows. And then all of a sudden you start to feel, we were right there when this whole thing shut down. So I'm, I'm chomping at the bit, as I said, to get back and start playing. Two questions for you, Steve. Go ahead, Jason. Oh, thanks. Uh, Two questions for one. Please come to Ohio. That's not a question, just a request. So I can, Mm -hmm. or close by, so I can see you guys. Um, So, where did you come across Amber? How did you find her and get her into the band? Because she really she changes the complexion, the sound of the band entirely. And that second, I mean, I told you this, I think, on Twitter. This album is a masterpiece, in my opinion. It's amazing, and she kind of helps make that sound. Oh, thanks. Thank you very much. we, I, I was over at the Basement East here in Nashville. It's a club, and the guy that owns it is an old friend of mine named Grimy. He also he has a Grimy, club. yeah, Grimy. He's got a Grimy. record store called Grimy's. Uh, he he is a Nashville iconic figure in the music scene here. I met Grimy in 1999. He was in a band called Bear Junior that opened for the Black Crows. And uh, Grimy is a Kentucky boy like me. We both went to Western Kentucky. We had a bunch of mutual friends. We didn't know each other when we were there at the same time, but we met years later. Anyway, so Grimy is a uh, he's a he's a jack of all trades here in Nashville and has been. He's a, a an integral part of the local music community. But I was just at his at, at the basement east. We were doing a gig. I think we do these uh, last waltz gigs every November. Mm-hmm. I'll put a band together and do a bunch of songs by the band, which is a blast. And I think I was over there to discuss that with him. And uh, he said, "What's going on with Trigger Hippie?" And I said, "Well, man, we got some great songs. You know, we got Ed in the band now." I said, we're looking for another singer. And he goes, and he goes, you know, you want another, you, you want a, a woman? Because, you know, we had had Joan. I said, well, I don't know that that's necessary. Um, we just want another voice. I said, it'd be great to find another great female singer. But I mean, right now I just want a singer. I just want to, we want to try some options. And he goes, well, look, if you're looking for a chick, man, there's a, there's a, there's a band that plays down at Acme on Thursday nights. It's a cover band, but I'm telling you, they got a girl and she's just, incredible it's ridiculous that she hasn't been discovered and and that's i if it had been anybody but grimy i wouldn't have even said where you know but grimy knows what he's talking about and i was like okay because it's on broadway <laughs> it's in the middle of honky tonk row and i'm like i don't want to go see some cheesy cover band playing for tourists 
but I walked, we walked in, me and Nick went down like that Thursday night and the band she was in was, well, first of all, it was a great band. They were like real ringers, everybody. And they were doing this really wild set list. They were doing like meter songs and Whitney Houston songs and little feet songs and Bruno Mars songs. And it was like, wow. it was like really something, but she stepped up and sang. I want to dance with somebody that Whitney Houston song. Yeah. And, and we song. literally just, <laughs> me and Nick are looking at each other like, <laughs> who the hell is that? And, and like grimy said, like, why isn't she somewhere already? You know? And, and then a few songs later, she pulled up a saxophone and started playing that. And we were just laughing. We were like, oh, right. well, there's obviously something wrong with her. You know, they're just going to be like, let's go figure this out. And, and so we talked to her a little bit that night. And then we got together a couple of days later. And she's just a, an absolute treasure of a human being. Um, we just loved her to death right off the bat. And the first time we got in a room with her, with Ed, they started singing together. And then she and Nick and Ed, like the, Ed and uh, Ed and Amber singing. And then when Nick joined in for some parts where the three of them were singing, you know, we all just had stupid grins on our faces. We were like, holy shit, this is great. And, um, and, you know, and again, haven't looked back. It just felt, it just felt really, really great. Yep. And, and question number two is from uh, your buddy, David Hudson at the state of America podcast. He wants to know <laughs> if, um, if the song uh, born to be blue started out as more of a jam it was it started out um we just had that chorus ed ed wrote ed wrote that chorus i mean he just had that little born to be blue and the melody and the little guitar lick he had those two things he goes hey here's something and right away nick goes oh that's cool i like that like um within a minute or two we just had that chorus going with with different vocal you know with harmonies and and immediately we settled on it's just going to be like a it's like a groove it's like a a, a meditation mm-hmm. almost yeah. you know and yeah. we wanted that intro piece to be almost like a talking heads like you just establish this vibe and you just hold it for a few minutes and 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 i think we you know we 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 understood the 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 format if you will of that song right away like this intrinsic it's going to be this, it's a vibe. It's just going to hold that place. And then it's going to have these choruses that lift. And then when we hit the, the part, that's the chant. That was originally something Nick came up with. And his immediate idea was I'll find lyrics for this. And he was just doing the chant to hold the melody. And, and I don't even remember who said it, but it was like, no, screw that. That's just a chant. That's perfect. And, and, the, and then Nick wrote the lyrics, the, the verse lyrics. And, you know, there, it, it's basically like this, it's this meditation on resilience and the human experience and, and depression and, and not allowing things to be, you know, you're finding strength in dark moments. And, and, and it, in that way, it fell together really, really quickly. And we never messed with it. The only thing we did was we shortened it. I mean, I think it was the first recorded version was 12 minutes and we cut it in half just because we thought we did the, we got enough, we said enough in that version, but you know, live it goes on longer, but it was always very steady. It was just that long, very deliberate groove into the, into the, into the song. And um, I mean, it was a great, that was one of those things where you, you, it's real tempting to overthink it and muck it up. And it was really simple and basic from the jump. And we, we just let it sit there. 
Yep. That's, my, when, that's my favorite song on that record, for sure. It's one of my top two or three. And so when society and civilization ultimately fails and there becomes the cult of Steve Gorman, that's your chant and that's your, you know, sure. all your followers are going are to say. I, 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 you know, it sounds, it sounds so silly when you talk about songs, but, you know, to me, it always had such a, it, it was, it's always very emotive to me when I hear it. That chant really is something about the human condition. And it's like this, it's just as a thing that's a very, con- it's a connection point for people. I mean, I, in the old days, if we'd made a video for it, we, we, you know, you, you just think about the concepts you would try to show there. And I, I just always saw a million people somehow coming together and, and, uh, and, and facing the same direction, you know, and, and yeah. in, in a weird, just in my own, you know, I, just kind of the way the the things that that song brought out of me was all about that. It was the, you know, our version of the, I'd like to buy the world of Coke commercial. Let's all go on a nice hillside (laughs) and let's all, you know, let's not, let's not be, let's just look out together. Like when people are facing the same direction, that's when shit gets done. Right. Like let's not look at each other in the eye anymore. Let's not turn our backs to each other. Let's all point to the same direction and go. That's what that song always makes me think about. Yeah. Relaxes me. Yeah. Great. So you mentioned your second guitar player, and then I've seen you have a keyboard player with you too. Are those guys in the band? Or are they just touring? Saul, Saul, uh, yeah, our, our guitarist Saul is like. If we make another album, I don't know if we'll make another full length album. We'll definitely be recording and releasing songs. We might do a series of EPs, or we might just do them one at a time. We'll figure all that out as we go. But Saul is definitely. I mean, Trigger Hippie is a five man band, and uh, and our keyboardist Jimmy Matt Ryland, if he's of down then yeah he's in too but it's the kind of thing where when you ju- when when the whole plug just got pulled for a year it's kind of like we're just getting offers and we're all like hey is everybody still here Are we good and so far everybody is um but yeah i mean like we don't need anybody else we've got the band we want and and when you asked before is this the lineup it's like well the answer is yeah i sure as hell hope so but uh but you know I- i'm not gonna handcuff myself to we're not all gonna go get matching tattoos and take a blood <laughs> oath you know hopefully if we you know, if you squeeze the puppy too hard, you can kill it. So let's all give each other. That's some more cult like behavior. We're all coming back to the call to Gorman here. You know, you just got to give everyone some room, <laughs> and if they dig it, they'll be there. And if not, then it's not meant to be. All right, I think we're going to go into some sports, Jason. You ready to talk sports, Steve? Always, even though I have not been paying attention to much of it lately, I will make what? up whatever I don't know. You're. Like one of my dreams was to talk sports with you. Don't ruin. I know just enough. Make shit up. To know that I know enough to know that I enjoyed watching the Buckeyes go down last week. I can tell you that hey, much. Just because I live in Columbus does not make me an Ohio State fan. I'm from the Cincinnati area. I'm a Cincinnati guy. So, so are you Cincy or Xavier? You're Cincy. Oh, Cincy. Oh, sure, sure, man. We're we're, pu- right. we're public school people, not private school we, bullshit. We can talk about Kenyon Martin all day long. I still oh. say that. Dude. I still say he's one of the five most dominant college players I've ever had the joy of watching in real time. The year UC was finally going to make a deep, good run since like yeah. 91 or 92 since Nick Van Exel. Fucking Kenyon Martin just breaks his leg in that conference game. It was brutal. Game. Oh my they God. were still a number one seed, but... Um, Is that 98, I think? 98? 99? I think it was 99 or 2000. Okay, so it was right Full when later. I got out of college and moved to Columbus. Yeah, just... let's. How about we don't talk about that? <laughs> That's fine. We, um, we don't have to talk about that. So how, how's your bracket? I did not fill one out um, for the Whoa. simple reason that I just, I literally saw um, the, the only game I watched on TV all year. I watched Michigan, Ohio state a couple okay. like a month ago. Great sure. game. I went to see uh, my Hilltoppers uh, at Western Kentucky a couple times in person. 
but I really just have not been watching. And so it's been, I've really enjoyed the tournament because I just get to see all these teams I haven't seen sure. and um, just keeping a loose eye on it. I, I do watch the NBA a lot more than college these days. Okay. Um, that's been the case forever. I watch the NFL like crazy and I'm a big soccer fan of oh, college basketball. It gets less and less interesting for me, the older I get. Um, I just, I mean, when, by the time you're 56, watching an 18-year-old do anything doesn't hold a lot of fascination for me. You know, it just doesn't. Like, I don't want to watch – I don't want to be in a car with an 18-year-old driving. So, you know. Um, but, but I, you know, it's funny. College basketball, I think I think when players started going early in the one-and-done era, really blew up. And, you know, the 30-year decline thanks to AAU basketball, all that shit that everybody's been talking about forever. Mm-hmm. You know, initially what it really did was damage the NBA, but that's completely turned around now. And and college basketball is just a different sport than it used to be. You know, I, I my son's 20 and he's a, you know, he goes to Indiana and and obviously the Hoosiers have been in a, in a ditch for a long time, but he's well aware of their tradition. And, you know, when when if he pulls up something about 80s college basketball, just like, you know, like looking at Jordan, Jordan Worthy Perkins, all these guys on the same team. You know, you look at the lineup that that uh, Kentucky had in the mid-80s, all the seniors, all the juniors, all the sophomores. You know, you look at any school, look at Duke. The idea that everybody stayed four years, you know, even he gets it. Like, that's a different sport. Like, yeah. there's, there's no comparing. And it's not about the three-point line. It's not about it's about the it's about the fact that kids used to stay at least three years and you could truly build a team identity every three or four years. You had a different identity. Well, look at Kentucky or Duke right now. It's a different identity every single year. And, you know, I'm sure Kentucky fans are thrilled to be a top five, top 10 team every single season, but they can't really. I, I just think there's something missing when you don't get to know these guys at all. You know, you like I yeah. used I just and I don't I don't begrudge them a bit for going pro. They should go pro. The minute you can get paid, leave. Doing what that's, you love. Yeah, why not? That's your yeah, job. Sure. Yep. But uh, but but it's the old. It's not a judgment call. It just I'm just not as interested in myself. And then the NBA had, of course, had a down period for a while post Jordan. Mm-hmm. And I think even 12 years ago, there were so many players coming into the league that weren't ready. But they've really turned that around. I think LeBron James has spawned an entire generation of kids who really have their shit together when they're 20 years old. Um, they just, they just understand that they are a brand much earlier in life. And you can talk about whether that's healthy or not for the kids who make it in the league. You just don't see that many head cases anymore. They all come in with a bit of an understanding of, of what they need to do. And they all, you know, when LeBron James is the best player in the world for 15 years and kids growing up, what, what do they see in him? The guy works his ass off. That's the number one thing about LeBron. Yeah. He he outworks everybody. Yeah, and it's pretty pretty great legacy to to lead another generation of players behind. Do you see like some of the changes? So this is going in a complete direction, but this is good with the NBA. You said there was a downtime for a while, and I consider the downtime. And everybody came in and just wanted to do dunks or like you know the the photo dunks, the poster dunks. Now with like people like Steph Curry and shooters really coming back, you're starting to see some more fundamentals and a different style. Of oh, I, th- I, I think that the three point shootouts way more exciting than the dunk contest oh, than the sure. NBA All Star game. So I mean, just that says everything you need to know. Like that's yeah. way more compelling now than a dunk contest. There's only so many dunks. You know what I mean? They've all been done for the most part. Now that kid that, that went up this year and tried to kiss the rim, if he'd pulled that off, that would have been the greatest thing I've ever seen. But that said. I just noted from myself and with my son, we were far more excited at the three point shootout. Um, and Steph Curry is of course relatable. I mean, he's six, three, you know, there's not a kid in America that doesn't think they're going to be six, three one day. 
I mean, hell, no one thinks they're going to be six nine unless right. both their parents are. You know, it's like no kid looks at LeBron and goes, "Oh, I'm going to be like that one day." But Steph, six three, is still tall, but on TV, he looks five ten. You know, it's like that. That's every kid sees him and goes, Relatable. "Yeah, hang on, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna back up and do some more shooting from even further away." Now it's been incredible to watch. How I mean, he's the most, he's the most uh, impactful, significant player of the 21st century by a mile. I mean, LeBron James didn't change basketball. Steph Curry did for sure. Agree. Okay. Um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say uh, if you can stick around for a couple more little segments, unless you, unless Jason's finished with the sports stuff. You got a couple minutes. We normally do a lightning yeah. round at the end. Yeah, bring it on. Well, okay, Brian, I'll combine my lightning round with sports stuff. How's that? Okay, so I got a question I got to ask you about. I have this fanboy kind of imagination about whatever camaraderie may have existed between the Crows and Blackberry Smoke. And yeah, you know, I, the thing I always go back and watch all the time is when you, you emceed their acoustic thing in Nashville and talked about their fans like, you like Blackberry Smoke, right? And also, can you confirm or deny that Richard and Britt worked for you guys during the Three Snakes sessions? Yeah, hundred percent. They were they were in the house all the time. There's a lot of footage that they were shooting too of us recording and and hanging around. You know, you can see everybody's dogs at the time. And um, uh, you know, I, I when I see that, I just notice Clementine, the greatest dog that ever lived, and I'm always like, oh, there she is. All right, you know. Um, yeah, those guys have been friends of ours forever. I mean. I knew I knew them I knew who they were like oh that's those guys from that band like those guys are brother like in the early 90s I'd see them and go oh that's that dude and that's that dude's brother like that's all I knew and I remember very specifically when uh, when Amorica came out we played the Fox Theater in Atlanta and after soundcheck I wanted to run home and so I just saw the promoter I said hey have you got a runner with a car and and it was Britt Turner he came in and I was like Hey, dude, I know you. And he goes, yeah, I'm Britt. We met. It. So I was like, right. And he ran me to my house because I had to pick up something. And um, and we were just talking that day and just hit it off. And right away, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'd met him and hung out at bars and stuff. But I was like, every time I see that guy, I really like him. Like, like I got to remember that dude. He's awesome. But Johnny knew him really well. Johnny already knew him well. And then by the time that tour ended, you know, he and uh, Richard had had a, a company up and running called One Three Graphics. And they were housed in this, in like a warehouse and they had a big storage space. And uh, we went in to make the three snakes record. And then after that record was done, we ended up moving into their facility. Like we had all of our stuff stored there, our rehearsal space, everything was in a building that they owned or that they leased. Anyway, I don't even remember if they owned it or not, but it wouldn't surprise me. They're both business savvy dudes. Like everything they do, they do really well. Um, but yeah, we've just been friends with those guys. I mean, like for me, I remember so since 95, but some of the other guys in the band knew them and had hung out with them a lot even before then. Um, but they're just, they're salt of the earth dudes and Blackberry Smoke was, you know, they started originally as the backup band for some singer who I can't remember his name. He was a guy that had a record deal and he put a band together and it was Richard Britt, Charlie. And uh, I'm trying to think if it was, Oh, I'm spacing. Who's the other guy in the Paul? band? Paul. Yeah, but I don't think it was him yet. It was okay. someone else. But anyway, they 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 were put together to be a guy's backup band. And then they were like, well, this guy's kind of a dick, but we all like each other. Let's start our own <laughs> band. I mean, that's how I remember it anyway. I might be a little off. but That's the, um, that's the Vinnie Vincent Slaughter story. You know that story? No, I don't. 
Oh, man. So, th- this is the rumor, and I, th- I, I, I accept this as reality. Vinnie Vincent, you know, he did the one record with Kiss. He went out yeah. and started the Vinnie Vincent Invasion, right? Yep. Um, the second album, they bring in Mark Slaughter and all these guys kind of to sing. Well, they hated Vinnie Vincent so bad, they kicked him out of the band and created Slaughter. Oh, well, yeah, there you go. You just These opportunities present themselves. Allegedly, I'll say. Allegedly. Um, so anyway, to answer your question, yeah, nothing but love for Blackberry Smoke. Right on. All right. Are you ready for the lightning round? We always do this at the end. It's it's first first answer that comes to your mind. I am ready. You're Fire away. You're ready. All right. Who's going to win the World Series? The Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> That's your. Who's your favorite sports team? The Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> Who's your favorite Baltimore Oriole of all time? Edward Murray. Oh, good. Co- oh, yeah, man. Nice. Number 33, baby. Dude, long Don't career, great switch hitter. Dude. Oh, I love Eddie. I met him two years ago. What a highlight of my life. Did he end his, did he end his career in Cleveland? He didn't. I, I don't think he ended it there. He was there in 95 when they For played the, the Braves in the World Series. Yeah, and I, yeah. I had field passes through a friend in the media. Oh, I was actually like. I was hanging out. I was at BP every day on the field talking to the coaches and shit. And I just kept getting, I would always make sure I was right near him. And he's notoriously like, you don't want to fuck with Eddie. So I never, I never bugged him. I mean, he's about to play world series game. I'm not going to go up and go, Hey Eddie, man, I love you when I was a kid. (laughs) I just always was, I was always like five feet away from Eddie Murray right now. You know, it was great. Well, the thing about that series too is, um, the Indians were ultimately beat by a Cincinnati boy that went to a, a school in Kentucky. What Dave, Dave Justice one zero hit the home run game five? He, cert- he certainly did. Yeah, I was a big Dave Justice fan, even though I'm a Reds guy. But yeah, you know, well, if you ever if you ever see the footage from Game Six when they win the World Series and there's the giant celebration on the pitcher's mound, you always see the ring of photographers around the the mountain of the players are all in a big pig pile. And they're surrounded by photographers taking photos. I'm one of those people on the field. Oh, no kidding. And and because I was a film runner, in quotes, for my photographer <laughs> buddy from Reuters. Got it. And I was out there like celebrating like a fan. I mean, I'm a fan on the field with a feet with a <laughs> with a media pass, you know, like losing my mind. It was great. So th- this is gonna go to my next question. What is the greatest sports event that you've ever witnessed live? Oh boy, that's a great question. Um I probably should have an answer. Like, there's this one thing I was there for. I'm trying to think if there's anything really. The one you thing were on I was the there field for, when the Braves clinched the World Series, yeah, you got to celebrate. That was great. Uh, but I'm thinking about a moment that everybody knows. This yeah. is a pretty good one. 93 NBA playoffs, Madison Square Garden, Bulls Knicks. John Starks crosses midcourt with less than a minute, drives to the baseline, and goes up and dunks left-handed over three of the Bulls. I was sitting right under that basket. Wow, that was pretty great. Did somebody give you those tickets? You buy them on your own. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. No, I was in a really cool rock band, and I used to get things like tickets under the basket for playoffs. Well, that's games. what I figured, but you know, yeah, of course. Asking the question. Yeah. Okay. Who, who's your most hated team? Uh, the New York Yankees. Yes. Right answer. Or, or the Ohio State Buckeyes if it's a Saturday in the fall. I'll take that as well, too, because you're a Michigan college football fan, right? I, I am a Michigan college football fan, which means I've been, you know, working this ulcer since the late 90s. Are they ever going to get over the hump and beat Ohio State anytime soon? No. No, I, I, I'm i not trying to protect myself. It's just yeah. not. I mean, the, the Ohio State I don't is see just, it. they've just gone away. They're just at a different place. It's yep. like, you know, it was it was a really great rivalry, and it doesn't feel like one at all anymore. 
I mean, they're just it's just a whole different level of commitment from the two programs. Well, if this makes you feel better, I used to go up and visit my friends at Ohio State all the time in the '90s when they routinely got the those were out of those them. were those were good days. And I remember so Michigan was a '98 Ohio State Michigan State Ohio State was actually undefeated. They went into the game against Michigan State. Michigan State ended up winning. My friends and I then went from that football game to go see the Cowboy Junkies play. And by the end of the night, they all want, the Ohio State guys wanted to kill themselves because that loss plus kind of a sad, dreary music. It was you would have yeah. loved it. Yeah, Cowboy Junkies not not good for uh, not, not good following not for the morale. <laughs> a loss like that, not at all. Um. All right. Uh, what's your favorite sport to play? To play uh, mm-hmm. basketball. Okay. Right. Tall guy. That would make sense. Um, I think I was. I think I was a better soccer player, but soccer just becomes impossible after a certain age. Oh yeah, I hear that, man. I can still go fake my way through some half court basketball, and <laughs> and was playing full court till I was about thirty five or thirty six. But weren't we all? Yeah, the, so- the soccer gave way much earlier. You know, was soccer a big thing where you grew up in Kentucky? Because, you know, I'm considering where you are in Kentucky. I grew up in a rural, rural part of southwestern Ohio. I don't think I saw soccer until I was in junior high school. No, we were the only school for 60 miles that had a team. We had to go to Nashville or Evansville, okay. Indiana to get a game. That's yeah, just a weird thing to, to play and be so into when you're growing up in an area that's probably not really soccer. Conference. Well, I, 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 I lived in Baltimore until I was 10, so I actually started playing in Maryland. Okay. Um, and so I was my bro, my I'm the youngest of eight kids. The three youngest boys all played soccer. And when we moved to Kentucky, we just happened to be in a really small town that had a really tiny little private school that was barely hanging on by a thread. It was a very looking back like this crazily progressive, not not a hippie school, but damn close in the in the mid mid to late 70s. And they no way they could have fielded a football team. And they're like, well, we got to do something in the fall. So they played soccer. And when we found out there was a school in town with a soccer team, we were just like, we got to go there. We got to go there. Nice. Yeah. Um, have you ever coached one of your kids' sports team? And which, what was it? Yeah, I coached both my, my son and my daughter in basketball um, through, through fourth grade. My son through fifth grade, my daughter through fourth. Um, and, and I was a hell of a coach. I'm just going to come out and say it. Better, are you a better drummer or a better coach? Much better coach. Much better, much better record. Dude, that's saying I, a lot. I, uh, well, it's real simple. If we out rebound the other team and lose, I'm buying everybody pizza. Every time we got more rebounds, we won. It's very simple to coach children in basketball. Trust me. It's easy to make them physical if there's food involved. Yeah. And you just, it's just, if we just have the ball every time, you guys, and we also had one really tall kid. And I looked, and my son was the point guard. Pass it to him. Go in for the rebound. Done. That's a great strategy. All right. Um, last round of questions. Uh, sports questions before the normal lightning questions. Um, how good are the Cincinnati Reds going to be there? Be this year? Are they still playing? Oh, fuck. <laughs> All right. How good are the good. Cincinnati? That's exciting. <laughs> how good are the Cincinnati Bengals going to be this year? Uh, well, just what is Joe back? What's the story? You got a quarterback. He's, he's back, but you have to have an offensive line to protect him, don't you? Uh, yes. As Ryan Tannehill can tell you all about this year in Tennessee. Um, yeah, uh, well, they're going to be better than they've been for a long time because that kid's special. At least you he got you got you got the most important part of the team figured out. Now go get some help. Well, if they keep tearing off his wheels because they can't protect him, that's not going to do us any yeah. good. Yeah, for sure. All right, best place to eat in Nashville. Uh, it's a place downtown called Kitchen Downtown on Fifth Avenue. 
uh, breakfast and lunch only. It's awesome. Uh, what, what, where's that located? Downtown Nashville on Fifth Avenue. On Fifth, okay. What's the best uh, dish they serve? Uh, it's a, a, we're a rotating stuff. They have a bunch of sandwiches and great salads and very inventive things. That's, you know, I don't know. I, I get something different every time I go. Nice. Uh, best place to see a show in Nashville. The Ryman. If you're sitting upstairs in the middle, if you're downstairs underneath the balcony, the sound can be a little wonky. It's still pretty great. Yeah. But, uh, but if you can get in that balcony in the middle sections, there, there's nothing better. And the Black Rose at least used to have a little thing in the display case out there. Did they still? Like uh, drum head question. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Um, what's the first concert you ever saw? I saw Heart with Walter Egan opening in 1978 at Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky. Nice. What's the first record you ever bought? First record I ever purchased was Beatles 6. Uh, eight days a week, Kansas City, you know, one of those Americanized versions of an album that they hadn't actually recorded. Hmm. Um, what's the worst venue you ever played in? Uh, we played, Mr. Crow's Garden played the basement of a Chinese restaurant in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, for, for nobody, literally, <laughs> for not, no one. Did they at least and, throw uh, some fried rice at you or something that, and, you know, well, free they, rice? They, the, the woman that ran the place, we were like, there's nobody here. You still want us to play? And she's like, yeah, she had fed us dinner. And so she was like, yeah, you ate, you're playing. And so we played, I had one friend show up who, I mean, this guy already knew. So he was on the guest list. And then, uh, and then one other guy walked in and he said, you guys know any Cougar? And we said, nope. And he just walked out. You know any Johnny Cougar? That's a true story. You guys know any Cougar? Nope. Uh, What's the favorite opening band that you've ever had? Um. Oh boy, I don't know. Probably jellyfish. Yes, right answer. Yes, that's yeah, how hoping you would say that. Just a. Bl- I mean, I. They're, they're just they're so just good. so fun and so good and so just everything. They were just they were just a blast. Gone too and it was soon. Still, it was it, that was a great the the month that they were out with us was a moment um, to answer a much earlier question. When did everything just feel amazing? That was that was pretty great time. The spring sure. of ninety one was was really good. That's a man. I wish those guys got a lot more traction. They were very talented. I like those guys. They were great. Um, what is what's your favorite band you've ever opened for? Um, I, I guess I would say uh, the Stones or ACDC. Um, trying to think. I mean, we played with Page Plant, but that's not Led Zeppelin, right? We played with Aerosmith. We played with a bunch of. I mean, at festivals, we've been on the bill with a lot of great bands, but like. Playing multiple shows with and watching them every night, I'd go with the Stones. Okay, yep, you got some good stories in your books. Book about that, Ryan. Yeah. Um. All right. If you could actually, play with- you know what? And, and I should say, Neil Young and uh, Crazy Horse Ooh. in two thousand one was also that was awesome. That was Rich loved Neil nights. Young, didn't he? Was like big, big Neil Young guy. Everybody did. Yeah. I mean, every, everybody in our band is always yeah. And Crazy Horse was just killing it that summer. That was great. Um, if you could play with one band or artist for one night, who would you choose? Uh, different answer every day. I mean, there's a million. I mean, I'd love to go play a gig with Crazy Horse. I'd love to go play a gig with with. Uh, I'd go play with just about anybody. I mean, I enjoy playing the drums in in music. So um, uh, I don't have like some list of I got to play a gig with this one person. But there's a bunch of people I'd be thrilled to play with. Okay, how many guitar icons have you taken a nap with? 
That would be well. I, 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 Jimmy Page is definitely on that list. <laughs> and then I, I, I don't know if uh, Rich ever napped alongside me, but we've probably been asleep in the same building at the same time. So maybe that counts. That's two. Answer uh, two. One, one for sure. Maybe two. <laughs> All right, Liam or Noel? Man, that's a tough one. I mean, they're they're the two greatest interviews in rock history. So yeah, uh, I think I got to go Noel by by a nose. Okay. All right. What's the best Oasis song? Uh, I don't know the titles. There's that one. Uh, there's a few. I don't know. I, I, I the songs are there's they're just all in the same realm. Um, I, th- I think I think top to bottom, those first two records are hard to beat. Yeah, agree. You know, pretty crazy. Um, all right, Oasis or Stereophonics? Uh, Stereophonics. I'm like literally the only American stereophonic fan other than you, I think, for real. Yeah. I love those no, guys. I, 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 Kelly's just a. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a next level singer. And, well, he's uh, performed with you guys before, right? Over in Europe? I mean, some YouTube clips, I think. He sat singing. in with us. I mean, I, I toured with them for a whole album cycle. I did 10 right. months on the road to stereophonics and had. Yeah, you and, did. And, and, and it was really something to. Uh, we played in Columbus with David Bowie, in fact, now that I think about it. Um, nice. It was really something to to be on stage with a, a guy like that. Um, like the way the, the songs, I was just so much aware, so much more aware of of where things have to fit within the lyric and the and the melody, because he, he doesn't fuck up the melodies. He, he hammers them every night. Mm-hmm. And and in the Black Crows, Chris is all over the place and the whole band is all over the place. And when I got in Stereophonics, there was this real sense of, oh, wait, these songs like I, I can't get in the way of the sing- like it's all about the vocalists, like 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 most bands are. And I was like, man, I got to really be aware of that because I, I for the first time was way more aware of accenting certain lines by either putting something underneath it or getting out of the way. Or there was just little things that would occur to me like. Oh, this is a pretty significant point of the song that I can accentuate a little bit. Little stuff like that that was never a focus or a priority in the Black Crows. Um, so it was it was great for me, and I and uh, just great guys. I mean, I, I always had it's you get along with everybody unless you're in a band with them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like the Gallagher brothers are awesome. I love those dudes and the guys in Stereophonics. But when I was out with them, that was about ten months. It was just a blast. You know, yeah. they were. They were really good. Kelly's a, a hell of a writer, man, and and a, and a really he's crazy singer. I I just can't believe they never got a little bit bigger in the states, man. That's just a solid, like you know, blue collar rock band. Yeah, they they didn't have the uh, w- something at radio in the late nineties. Just wasn't they just weren't buying in, and it was always kind of shocking. Their first two records have oh. four or five songs that you look yeah. back now and go, "How did this not get on the radio?" It just makes I no heard- sense. Um, have a nice day. I think was occasionally used in like a movie or a TV show or something. I think maybe, and that's about the only one I ever really heard until I started getting into those guys. Yeah. Okay. So, what is your favorite Stereophonics song to play with the band, and why is it Vegas Two Times? Sorry, it was uh, it was probably just looking. Uh, really? Just because that was yeah. I just love the way it built up and hit that humongous release in the chorus. And- okay. And uh, when we were doing the shows in the UK, they're playing like arenas. And then we played in Cardiff and it was, a, it was a stadium it's 75,000 people. Yeah. And they're singing every word to every song, but that chorus specifically when they come in and, you know, just watching that many people singing at the top of their lungs, like it's their local boys done good. That was pretty incredible. 
And, and I just always just looking as a song that the first time I ever heard it, it like stopped me in my tracks. I was like, Oh, that boy just took a big leap. It's a, it's a really great tune. Well, Vegas two times rocks. It's really heavy. I figured with you being a drummer, that was right, right in your wheelhouse. No, no, I dug it. It was, it was really good. I dig that. I, the the last song on Jeep is called Rooftop. I really dug that one a lot too. Okay. Um, what is the best album you've played on? Um, I would imagine that would be the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. Okay. All right. What's your favorite book? Oh, right now, or let me think. Yeah, whatever, man. Favorite Open book question. for life? Yeah. No, I don't know. I'm I'm probably. Uh, I think the books that have usually when you find a writer you like, that's your favorite writer. Cause wherever you are in life, it's like, like writers I loved a long time ago. They don't mean as much now is my point. I have yet to read anything by Michael Chabon that didn't just blow me away. Um, I think the Yiddish policeman's union is one of my favorite, like, you know, hmm. fictional books, the Ca- Cavalier and clay. They're, they're all every book that guy writes is absolutely incredible. So just take your pick. Something by Michael Chabon works for me. You know, I just gave you the good opportunity to, to you know, sell your own book there. Just <laughs> <laughs> Haven't read it yet. Still mean, I've been meaning to get around to it. <laughs> you lived it. Um, what's yeah. a good streaming show or movie that you've watched during this pandemic time? Period? Uh, Patriot on Amazon. Oh, yeah, I've seen you. Um... Two seasons. Go yep. get it. It's the yep. best thing ever. Okay. We're getting, we're getting to the home stretch here. A couple more questions. Um, what is a guilty pleasure song or artist for you that we'd be surprised to hear? I can listen to that song Royals by Lord every day. Oh, I've never yeah. gotten tired of it. The first time I ever heard it, I just was listening going, what is this? I, I still absolutely love that song. That's not that embarrassing. I, th- but there's we'll no, there's no guilt. There's no guilt associated. I was going to say, yeah, an, I mean, that's not, you really... said unexpected. So yeah. Um, okay. All right. Um, I can still, if you put on run to me by the Bee Gees, my eyes will be moist by the time it's over. There's, oh. there's no shortage of songs that, that uh, I, I'm not guilty about any of it. I just like what I like. So Greg Martin also talked about the Bee Gees from the Kentucky Headhunters. That was one of mm-hmm. his in disco in general. He also said you're a nice guy too. So, well, God bless him. <laughs> you know, I, I I tell people, please, if I come up in conversation, give me give me give me some love. All right, I guess, two last he, I guess he took me seriously. Every yeah. everybody, JD Simon. I mean, everybody likes you. So, um, they were pumped. All right, JD's a player, boy. He's he was a, he was so he's, good to talk to. He's a bad man. He is a bad man. Do you know he's helping score a Tom Hanks film about Elvis Presley? I did not know that, but I'm happy to hear it. And Tom Hanks is playing Colonel Tom Parker in that as well, too. Yeah, right on. Right. So there you go. And it's being directed by Baz Luhrmann. That's an awful lot of information to process. That, that's <laughs> you just you just took the lightning round right into first gear, dude. <laughs> well there you go um all right so what did junkyard teach you about deli trays when you went on tour with them what did they teach us about deli trays uh-huh i'm sure it was something great <laughs> okay well they told a little bit of a story about deli trays and they taught you guys the right the right use of a deli tray how's that Okay, I, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not following, and I, I I have very warm memories from that tour, but I'm not sure specifically what you're getting at. Also, Patrick, the drummer said that one time you guys switched, like you went on their tour bus and he went into your van for a couple nights or something. No, that wasn't me. I didn't get on that bus overnight. Um, 
David Roach, the singer, rode our van one night. He ended up, we went from Vegas to, I think maybe it was Phoenix. And, uh, and, and let me think about this. Hang on one second. Sorry. Sure. I have to respond to something. No worries. Um, I'm trying to think. It's not going to come to me. We, we, I will say this. We had a blast with those guys. They were awesome. And, um, I, it, it was a bad, it was a bad night because, um, uh, in, in Houston, was it Houston? I had to actually had to finish their set. Um, cause he blew his eardrum out, his eardrum oh. kind of burst. And so like they get to the encore and they're like, Steve, can you play drums for the encore? And I was like, Oh my God. Like, yeah. <laughs> And I ran up and we played, I think we played Sin City, ACDC. And I was oh, like, no kidding. Oh, right on. That's yeah. right. Your wheelhouse, man. Isn't it? You're a big ACDC guy. Oh, I was loving it. It was great. Those guys were really cool. We had, we had a lot of fun with them. That's what they said. And they were, I mean, they were complimentary you guys. And they also thought it was cool is they got to take you guys out. One of your, I think one of your first. Real it was the, listen, listen, that, I mean, I guarantee you the, the band that opened for them, our first night, that was our first tour. We, we started in Anaheim. And it ended in Ventura, California, or no, it ended in, uh, it ended in Oakland, California. So we went from Anaheim to Oakland, but went to Fort Lauderdale and Portland, Maine in between. I mean, we went literally all around the country. And by the time that tour ended, I don't know that any bands ever become better over a six week stretch. Like we were a very different band. That was, like I said, the first time we ever had a chance to play every night. And, you know, they probably looked at our first night and went, Okay. And then by the time we were finished, I mean, they're they like, you guys got really good, yeah. you know, and it was, yeah. they were totally supportive and really cool to us. Yeah. They liked you guys a lot. All right. Last question before Brian brings us home here. Um, tell us a good tour story. Just good to you that nobody, you never really heard before you've told. Um, gosh, I do not know. See, this is the thing when, when put on the spot with a tour story, my mind goes blank. Um, when, when it's the last thing on my mind, I can remember 8 million tour stories. Um, How about with let's see. You, if you gave me a year or a tour or a date, if you said I was at this gig, you tell me so I can remember something from that day. But uh, it's just like Pavilion like, and Kettering in 2005, 8? I don't know. Uh, okay, no, not so much that one. Let's see. Let one. me find another one. Brian has one. Go, Brian. Opening night of the Amorica bus tour at Leroy Wilkins Auditorium in St. Paul, Minnesota, March 3rd, Friday, 1995. Damn. I remember watching the Dirty Dozen from the side of the stage very intently going, holy shit, this is going to be like music school every night. And then Terrence, their drummer, who was just awesome. I mean, he was just killing it. And that was, they had never played with a drummer on a drum kit before. They always just had, you know, a bass and snare. But he, they, they had him out playing on a full kit and he came over afterwards. I was like, Hey man, you do like, Oh my God, this guy is mind boggling. And that night after our set, we were talking and I just said, so you from new Orleans, we're kept, you know, getting to know each other, drinking a beer. And he goes, he goes, yeah. He goes, well, I went to Southern university and, you know, I was there for a few years and I said, Southern university. I said, when were you there? He said, he said, 88, 89, 90. And I said, were you in the pet band? And he goes, yeah. I said, like, were you in the band that played at basketball games? And he goes, yeah. And I said, were you at the NCAA first round games at the Omni in Atlanta in 1989? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, holy shit, you're the best drummer I've ever seen in my life. Because truly in 1989, I'm at the Omni for the first round of the tournament. 
And the Southern band, the, the, it was Terrence, their drummer. I sat there the whole time going, what am I watching? This guy's amazing. And, and I've never been more excited to meet a member of a college pet band in my life. <laughs> I was like, dude, trust me, you were the baddest thing I've ever seen. He couldn't believe I would remember that. And I was like, no, man, I left the Omni that night going, oh, that guy's going to do something. That was my He's first awesome. show when I saw you guys. So, oh yeah, so, yeah. Always had good nights in the Twin Cities, man. Mm-hmm. Always. Up. Well, Steve, you know, you've got a book that's out. When's the paperback coming? It paperbacks out, man. The pa- is there additional chapters in it? No. Ah. Uh, okay. No, when's that's the sequel? A, that's, a, that's a project for another day. Okay. When's the sequel? And are you going to call it twice as hard? I have not gotten to that point yet. Let's uh, right. let, let's take let's see if the forty more chapters get written in life, and then we'll come back around. All right. Hey, you're in Trigger Hippie. You've got your own radio show. You got a lot going on. Where's the best place for your fans to go to find out all about you? What's going on? How to get a ticket? Um, well, if you go, well, the radio show SteveGormanRocks.com is the easiest thing to do. Um, okay. I'm uh, we have socials up for there. For me personally, I'm uh, my Twitter's SGS Fox. That's a good one to go to. I need to change good follow, it. Follow really good follow though. But some some the guy who has Steve Gorman has never tweeted. He's just someone sitting on it for. He's got you know it's not active. I'm like, come on, dude, give it up. But we'll see one of these days. All right, Brian. All right. Hey, Steve, I, I'm so thankful that you came on our podcast. You're very gracious to us. That means the world to me and Jason. Just that we're both such huge fans of the Crows and Trigger Hippie. And thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, sure thing, very, fellas. Very, very awesome. All respect, all love. So for listeners, that's Steve Gorman, ex-Black Crows, current Trigger Hippie drummer, author of Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. Steve, thank you so much. Wish you well with everything that you're doing and thank you so much again for being here cheers thanks fellas well thanks everyone for listening to that awesome chat that we had with steve gorman um man uh he called you dude a lot when you guys are talking sports that was hilarious <laughs> yeah. Normally, yeah you know what he also too. bashed my cincinnati teams as well too and, oh, and bought up great. bad men <laughs> are they still playing oh <laughs> uh, he man he hurt my feelings <laughs> Man, but, you guys talk to sports. That was cool. I love, man, there's two things I love in life, music and sports. And sports were my first love. And then got into music. And then when my sports careers all came crashing and burning, <laughs> um, music was there to pick me up. So I love the Black Rose. I love Gorman. Um, and one of my dreams was come true was to be able to talk to him and talk sports with them. And I was so happy we were able to do that. Like, yeah, that was, cool. I was just floating was for the last couple cool. days. Yeah. Even though he crap, crapped on my team. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> they deserve it. But uh, he was really gracious to answer all our kind of like different weird questions about stuff in the book. And Honestly, uh, too. He even corrected yeah. some stuff. Yeah. Really cool. You know, Good guy. And, good guy, man. Just a real, real outstanding dude. And to take, take an hour and a half to talk with us is just says a lot. I forgot to ask him about when, when they opened up for Tom Petty. Well, for part two, so, you know. Yeah, or if we should get, you know, Mark Ford at some point. <laughs> Mark Ford, and, you know, and it's maybe some other members of the Black Rose, Ben or yeah. Oddly, yeah. although, I, I don't know, Oddly wasn't playing with them when they opened for the Crows. I think that's when Mark came back, right? Yeah. Yeah. In 05. Yep. Yeah. 
I remember seeing those guys too at uh, uh, Riverbend in Cincinnati, a big outdoor amphitheater mm-hmm. with the Crows open and then Petty show. That was great. And that's, you know, I was a casual fan of Tom Petty and he played two and a half hours. I knew every song as a casual fan. I knew every mm-hmm. Tom Petty. And I was like, I was just, after that, I was just amazed by him and just realized how good he really was. Yeah. And uh, I think it was August of 2005. I went to Rockfest in Kadat, Wisconsin. And then um, they both played on that festival, like back to back, just as if it was one of those tour shows, which was just like everything to me. For sure. Well, what did you, I mean, what are some of the big stuff you took away from Gorman? You know, just that he's still, you know, he's, I think because he wrote the book, he knows he's still going to get a lot of Crows questions. But I think as we went through it, we kind of noticed like when we got to Trigger Hippie and sports, it's like, you know, then not that he wasn't glowing already, but then he was really glowing, you know, talking about that stuff, you know. So... I don't know who, I mean, you know, is he, is he kind of starting to get over talking about the book, but I suppose when you write a book, then, you know, write a book, he wasn't, you know, a great guy and happy and enthusiastic to talk about it. But yeah, I mean, when we reached out to him and said, Hey, we want to talk about the crows, trigger hippie and talk some sports. He he said, you know, fire away with whatever you want. He didn't say, I don't want to talk about anything, Uh, but he's done a zillion interviews and podcasts, everything else kind of said the same answer. So, I let you rule with most of the crow stuff yeah. and just jumped in. Cause I'm like, I'm ready to, you know, I'm, I'm interested in some of the other stuff that we don't normally get to hear from a, from a Gorman interview. And hopefully the people our our fans, our listeners are going to um, enjoy or did enjoy. Cause this is the closing segment. Did enjoy some of the questions that uh, he answered for us. Yeah. I think maybe a better way I can say it is that you could kind of really sense how, how much, you know, that's in the rear view, rear view mirror for him. And there's no second thoughts and there's no, you know, his, and he's happy. Yeah. And as, uh, you know, as, as much as, you know, one could imagine it would be amazing to have been in the crows and have that experience that you get to see like how just like, although he still talks about it, you know, and is willing to do that. You just, I got the sense that he's really, really illustrating too, is like how much, like I said, that like, that's, that's, He's getting farther away from that past, like leaving yeah. an island and just like full speed ahead, confident and just happy, really happy. Well, you said of both. There was closure for him and he's he's happy with everything he's accomplished. He's happy where he is now and there's he doesn't care to go back to it. And you know what? Good on him and Trigger Hippie is a great band. I am I am honest. That that second album, the one you just got, is great from start to finish. It truly is like a modern mm-hmm. rock masterpiece. And I just, man, I just even my wife likes it. Like we just, I just dig that. And I, I got to see these guys live. I'm looking forward to them getting some dates in the summer and the fall. And I, I really hope I can capture them. Mm-hmm. And then I like the story, how they got Amber in the band too. That was, you know, how yeah. they went and yep. saw her perform with a cover band and she was doing like Houston and all this other stuff. And, you know, I would have loved to dig into that a little bit more Him touring with the stereophonics because again, you've heard me say it a couple of times, even on this interview is, I think I'm like the only other stereophonics fan in America. <laughs> like me and Steve Gorman are the only people that like the stereophonics over here. But I would have liked to talk a little bit more about his 10 months touring with that band yeah. too. Next yeah. time. Well, it was just awesome to talk to him and have him on. Oh, and dream come true. That's really, uh, you know, as, as much as we're already like excited about this podcast and stuff and like things like that kind of go, it's like, 
you know, puts a little more coal in the steam engine and makes the train go faster. Yep. And I can't believe we worked in a discussion about Vinnie Vincent, the Vinnie Vincent invasion. <laughs> <laughs> Who would ever thought that would happen? And that related to the origins of Blackberry smoke of all things. Yeah. And then for me personally, to bring up the story of um, being at, being at Ohio state's campus in 1998 and watching and being there for Ohio state to lose their undefeated season, to Michigan state, going to a Cowboy Junkies concert and my friends who went there being ultimately depressed because Gorman's a big Michigan fan, doesn't mm-hmm. like Ohio State, to have him comment on that. So when my friends listen to this, they get to hear that and relive that and have him make fun of them. So I'm so happy. <laughs> and we're happy and I hope you all are happy. And if we're all happy, we can say, always remember Southern Rock is reverent and blues is blood and we'll see you next time. Yeah.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 